Welcome everyone to the Soft, Hard, and Wet. It's our final race review of the season, but have no fear. It's not our final Soft, Hard, and Wet of the season. We're going to come hard over the next couple weeks with some off-season content, some end-of-the-year recap and and awards, but uh, we'll start today with uh, the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix, the final race of the season. We've got a lot to talk about. Max, Mercedes, Ferrari, McLaren, Aston Martin, to, to name a few. John's with me here today. And it's amazing, John. This was the last race of the year. And somehow, every single session, practice, qualifying, and the race, I managed to get very bored of watching the, the uh, broadcast. Very bored. Hmm. You know, I've heard that described uh, of this last race of the season kind of fitting with Max being so far out ahead in the lead, um, a little bit of fighting down there in the middle. I don't know if boring is the way that I would describe it. I, you know, as the sun set in Abu Dhabi, uh, it was rising here in Texas. And uh, with a cup of coffee in hand, I, um, you know, I kind of enjoyed the last race of the season. I thought it was, um, was it super exciting? Did we have some uh, battles? Uh, maybe a few, but uh, boring? I don't know that I would call it boring. I don't know what it was, but it was difficult for me to stay engaged. And again, it was it was every session. I watched practice, obviously, FP1 with the 10 rookie drivers. Um, there's not a lot of meat on that bone. FP2 was a nightmare for everyone because of the r- multiple red flags. FP3, I, I didn't really feel like was uh, giving us any good information about who was quick and who was slow. It was just kind of a they're still figuring things out session qualifying in a year where qualifying has always delivered, you know, Saturday has been arguably the best day of every race weekend, but then Sunday, it just, it didn't do it for me. It didn't really move the needle. Uh, There wasn't a lot happening on track. There wasn't a lot happening strategy wise. I don't think that that racetrack is that great. I mean, I'm not telling you, you should have been, I just, I got bored. I I will admit Outside of the first maybe five to ten laps, I guess maybe until 17 or, or so is when people started pitting. That was exciting. There was uh, some downtime in the middle. And then towards the end, we saw a few, you know, a few battles that kept us going. Obviously, you know, Fernando uh, was battling a bit. Lando was battling Checo. And we'll get into that a little bit later. But it seemed like there were, you know, there were a couple of guys that were going back and forth towards the end, but I will say that this did feel like it felt like a few teams were just kind of phoning it in. There was a battle in the constructors that it seemed only one team was really uh, interested in, in participating in. And then everybody else just kind of knew where their place was going to be. And they fell into it. Speaking of being bored, it's kind of boring at this point to talk about it, but it almost has to be mentioned. The season that Max put up, and even this weekend, you know, he was complaining it wasn't wasn't how he wanted it to be in FP2, wasn't how he wanted it to be in FP3. Comes into qualifying and just sticks it on pole. There was really never any question in the race, even though during the first stint, he kept us thinking that maybe uh, Ferrari had a chance there. But by the time we were halfway through the race, he's just kind of starting to pull away. This was a very ho-hum, 
impressive win for him. But this season in general, he had 19 race wins. The interesting thing to me were the points. And it wasn't the number of points. It was the percentage of points. So with 22 races, plus there were six sprint races, plus there were 22 fastest lap points available. So if you add all those together, that's 620 possible points. So if you won every sprint race, won every race, and won every fastest lap, you could score a possible 620 points. He scored 575. That is almost 93% of possible points that he scored this entire season. He had a win streak of 10 consecutive wins, which is the longest ever, and a win streak of seven wins. So if he would have won Singapore, it would have been 18 straight victories. But we had Singapore in the middle of those win streaks. The 10 wins in a row is first all time, obviously, but the seven wins in a row is tied for third all time with three or four other drivers who have done it. But he did it within the same season. That's incredible. We witnessed something that we we have never seen before and possibly will never see again. So to give Max his due, that was incredible. Hats off. You know, I, I came today fully prepared to give a similar speech. And the fact that you beat me to it would normally irk me, but it brings a little Max Verstappen tear to my eye to see you give him credit that he deserves. I guess, you know, out of 22 podiums, what did he take? 21 of them. Uh, This weekend, they mentioned it quite a bit, you know, over a thousand laps. Man, it's just, it's one of those things that I feel like you're probably, now granted, we've only been watching for, you know, four or five years. But I feel like this is probably one of those things that you're only going to see once in a lifetime. I'm sure that there's a big grouping of people who say, oh, yeah, Max is the best there ever is or ever was. He's going to repeat next year. And, you know, the little bit of uh, of the the Max inside of me wants to say that. But the reality of it is, is I don't know if we're going to ever see such a dominant season from a driver in our lifetime again. I couldn't name one historically that was as dominant. Um, but I, but I can almost guarantee you, I'm not going to see one again. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty convinced that this was a once in a lifetime experience type of season. But then again, I haven't been watching that long. So let's put, let's put Red Bull aside for the moment. I want to talk about Mercedes real quick. We talk about Max's win total and, and percentage of points and all that stuff. And I don't know if they mentioned it this week. I want to say Crofty brought it up during a practice session for Mexico or something like that. It was a while ago, but I I stuck it back in my brain as something to keep an eye on for the rest of the year. He had said that every season since 1952, at least one race had been won by a British driver. So we've gone 71 years since the last season where a British driver did not win a race. And Mercedes, with their two British drivers, had chances this year, but for the first time in 71 years, we did not have a race won by a British driver in Formula One. I think that's a pretty interesting stat. It definitely shows the the dominance of 
British drivers over the history of Formula One. Um, but I mean, Max, right? Like that's that's pretty much all you can say to that is is Max. And had he not been around, I think you would have seen um, you would have seen Lewis and George um, be a little bit more dominant. I know that they've kind of switched back and forth throughout the season, it seemed like Lewis was Lewis had started stronger than George had. And then towards the middle of the season, it, it almost was like there was a battle back and forth to see like who, who, who was going to establish their dominance this season. And then obviously, you know, towards the end of the season, the last few races, George has finished, you know, a little bit better than, than what Lewis has. And if you look at the standings, Lewis still finished ahead of George. So, I mean, I guess you could make the argument that he's still the more dominant driver, but I I'm hoping that as more drivers come into formula one that aren't British, no, no offense to our friends across the pond that this becomes a non issue. Um, it, it was one of those curses that were broken and now it's broken and we don't really care about it anymore, but it is, extremely noteworthy given the history um, of wins that that British drivers have brought to to Formula One. And I agree with you that Russell really did end this season strong. Uh, good performance in Vegas. I, I don't want to go back and, and rehash the penalty that he received for crashing into Verstappen in Vegas. That knocked him back a few places, but on pure pace, he, he did great in Vegas on pace, he did wonderfully in, in Abu Dhabi. Do you know who won this year between Russell and Hamilton? And I know Hamilton won on points, but do you know who won in terms of their uh, qualifying places? No, I don't. But I have a feeling that you might. 11 each. So George out-qualified Lewis 11 times and Lewis out-qualified George 11 times. Really? That's surprising. Yeah. That's really surprising. Um, you know, it seems to me, and I was going to ask you about this. It seems to me that obviously the car has had some issues and like every team, they've made a number of upgrades, a number of downgrades. They're constantly tweaking through the year. It seemed though that George was a bit more malleable, I guess is probably the, the right way to describe it. Um, whenever it came to car setup and ability to perform on the track, whereas Lewis has a, maybe a much more stringent set of guidelines that he likes to see out of the automobile. Is that, is that something that you saw this season out of that? Or, or am I just, am I imagining things to make me feel better about the fact that I want George to be better than Lewis? I, <laughs> I don't know if you're imagining things. I feel like George had some unlucky moments. I feel like Lewis did too, but George had some more moments this season that I can shoulder blame on him for uh, that, that wound up allowing his point total to not be what it should have been. I think he's going to settle down a little bit more after now, now two seasons at Mercedes. I think next year you're going to see a way more comfortable George Russell. He's got two seasons under his belt and he's going to make fewer mistakes next year. I, I'm, I'm feeling pretty certain about that. Hopefully Mercedes can give them a car where they're both competitive week in and week out because I'd love to see a little more head to head between the two of them. I feel like they're pretty evenly matched. I think Mercedes has their heir apparent after the Lewis Hamilton era ends. 
and I'm I'm excited to see it next season. I don't know exactly how it's going to work out, but it, it should be fun to watch. Do you think that Toto will stop coddling Lewis long enough to give George no uh, the time he deserves to no. develop off track? Okay, yeah, I didn't think so either. Good. I mean, the number of times that the guy comes on no. and apologizes about the automobile is ridiculous, and. And I know historically he hasn't done this, and most of the time principals don't come on the radio unless it's necessary. But like even this this Sunday, Toto coming on, we know you're doing the best you can. You're the second fastest, and it's like, oh, you're not really the second fastest. But tell him whatever he wants to make him believe that you know he's going to have a last you know race of the season that that might be halfway decent. Like, come on, man! Like it's starting to get a little ridiculous. Yeah, and I, I don't know if you have to come on the radio just to try and charge up a seven-time world champion to get more into the race. Like, he's he's doing just fine. You don't need to come on there and try and ramp him up. Well, apparently you do, and apparently um, it didn't really work because, you know, he still got beat by Yuki, Fernando, Oscar, Lando, Checo, George, Charles, and Max, Man, to name that- a few. That drive by Yuki was so great. I, oh, I know man. that's, I don't want to spend a ton of time on it, but just got to mention that was some awesome stuff from Yuki this weekend. I I thoroughly enjoyed uh, seeing Yuki lead a few laps. Um, obviously, you know, climbed up uh, right after the starting grid and just, yeah, he's one of those guys like you just, you want to see him do well. And I know that's not how we base everything that we say on this podcast as, you know, likability factor. There's clearly some drivers we like, and there's some that we don't. But I think the world can agree. We all want to see Yuki do well. Yeah, so speaking of seeing uh, teams do well because you like them, I, I, I need to apologize, or at least say that I was wrong. You know, I remember in our Las Vegas show, damn near guaranteeing you, Thomas, that Ferrari would come through and clinch second, that they would do what needs to be done in the constructors. You were very confident. Oh man, I don't know. There's, I've been confident in a lot of things, but wrongfully confident as I was about Ferrari, I don't know that I've ever been. And you said, no, they're just going to Ferrari themselves. And you were right. I don't know what to say. I mean, there's a lot of stuff we can say, and maybe because you came from a clearer perspective than I did, but what the hell happened this weekend? Well, the thing to be happy about as someone, if if you are a, a supporter of Ferrari, you had another strong weekend by Leclerc. That's five front row starts in a row. He's had two straight podiums, maybe three, I can't remember. But... He's finished the season very strong, especially compared to signs. Do you feel like that's going to translate for him into the offseason and into next year? I mean, a couple races ago when he didn't start, I mean, he was cursing the heavens about how unlucky he is and, uh, you know, just the struggles that they've had. I think, it, yeah, that was Brazil, wasn't it? So that was three, two races ago, three races ago. I mean, he's had his ups and downs, but do you think that, his end of season form is going to translate to a better 2024 finishing on a high note. You would think would translate into the off season of listen, we, we were 
and I hate to say this about Ferrari, but we've said it over and over. So I feel like we just come up. We were on a terrible team. We didn't have the right automobile. Our strategy was crap. And I was still able, able to perform in a way that I guess would, would make anybody else proud. I, I would hope that that fuels. But if we've learned anything this season, it's that week to week and especially off season to off season, it's a crapshoot. Like, who knows what sort of tinkering Ferrari's going to go back to the factory and do and present to us next season. And those poor guys are going to have to deal with. And it really makes me feel bad for, you know, even for Carlos, for example, like you can remember before he got to Ferrari, that was a dream of his was like, I want to go win in Ferrari, the history of Ferrari, the team, the color, like everything about Ferrari, he wanted to go win. And then you get to Ferrari and it's like dating the the really hot girl in school. Like you just want to date her because she's so hot. And then you get there and you realize she's psycho. And then you have to think to yourself, like, is she more hot than psycho or more psycho than hot? And that determines whether or not you stay with her. And I feel like Charles and Carlos are dealing with the same thing with Ferrari. Yeah, I think at the end of the day, they're both going to realize that, you know what, she's still pretty hot and I want to stay here. They're just going to grind it out, I guess. Pun intended. No matter how hot they are, someone somewhere is sick of their stuff, Tom. Well, I do feel like the season-long consistency from Carlos Sainz really disappeared when Ferrari needed it most. Not just this weekend, Um and I know he was hard done by that penalty in Las Vegas, but I was really expecting more over the last couple of weeks from, from Carlos. I thought he was on a good uh, string of performance. And I, I was telling you this earlier. I think that there are two reasons um, that we can point blame at for this particular outcome. Some blame falls on Carlos. Very poor qualifying. Out in Q1, starting 16th or whatever it was. But I do want to put a fair amount of blame on their race engineers or whoever was coming up with that strategy to start him on hard tires. Like, I get it. Maybe you're going to go for a one-stop and go very, very long on the hard tires. But pitting uh, on his first pit stop to put hard tires on again in the hopes that something happens later in the race. I just think that was very poor decision-making. First of all, the pit stop to start to go onto another set of hard tires, I think that was a dumb decision. But the bigger decision that I disagree with is starting him on hard tires. Because when you look at the cars that are between, obviously his fight is with Mercedes. Hamilton starting 11th. Signs is starting 16th. The cars between them were Esteban Ocon, Lance Stroll, Alex Albon, and Daniel Ricciardo. And if you were to tell Carlos Signs, can you pass those four cars? I think he would say resoundingly, yes, I can catch up to Lewis Hamilton if those are the cars between us. So why go crazy on strategy? When those are the cars between you that you know, your teammate put it on P2. You have a fast car. And I understand that Hamilton probably had some upside as well, but he had harder cars in front of him to pass. So the idea of signs catching up to Hamilton 
rather than Hamilton driving away from signs, I think I think you've got to put your uh, your confidence in your driver to say we're going to start you on the aggressive strategy, not the roll the dice and see what happens, but we're going to start you on the same strategy as your teammate. And we're going to go for it. We're going to trust that you can make these positions up. And I just, I think it was dumb. I think it was dumb to start him on hards. And I think it was dumb to keep him on hards because now you're just hanging him out there as he gets slower and slower at the end of that second stint, praying that something happens. And I get it. At some point, he's been passed by too many cars that you have to leave him out there at that point until basically the last lap. And that's what they did. They were hoping something happened and nothing happened. But that's Abu Dhabi. Now, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I I would agree with you on that. Uh, hard to hard doesn't make any sense for them, but it seemed like the the whole weekend for them didn't really make sense. All of their efforts were geared towards Charles, and when you have a driver out there halfway through the race or three quarters of the way through the race, I can't remember what lap he came on, and Carlos is like, "Hey, man, I'm a bit lost here. What are we like? What are we doing?" Obviously, to your point, Carlos did himself no favors in qualifying but the team did him no favors in the race and when you're fighting for second in the constructors you would expect a little bit more support to carlos and i feel like charles got the support that he needed but also i felt like towards the end of the race charles was the only one that cared where they finished charles is on there trying to come up with strategy of do i let checo through What's the gap to George? How many seconds? Like, he's the only one concerned about where Ferrari finishes. And it was like Ferrari had already given up for the season. They were like, oh, yeah, we're done. We're going to get beat. Don't you feel like the team should have been giving Charles that advice uh, to try and figure out how to get P2 in the constructors? Instead, it's Charles going to the pit wall saying, hey, I came up with this idea and I want to just I'm going to let Checo pass and I'm going to try and hold up George for five seconds. Like, that was so dumb. I mean, it was brilliant from Charles. But why isn't the team more on that? Because Ferrari, Tom, because of effing Ferrari. That's why. It's so it's so infuriating. And they're not even my team. I just want to see them do better than they've been doing. But it's just it's idiotic. It makes no sense. Charles is over here trying to and obviously the gap between Charles and 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 George at that time or Checo at that time, it, it was a far enough gap where he had some time to think. But still, to your point, the strategy should have been coming from the pit wall, not from the guy driving, trying to get your team some points uh, and figure out the best way to get them to clinch the constructors, uh, the second in the constructors. It's just it's it's pure. I don't know, man. It's so stupid. It's absolutely stupid, but it's Ferrari. Shall we talk a little bit of McLaren? I don't think that it would be a soft, hard and wet podcast if we didn't talk a little bit about McLaren. Well, they secured fourth in the Constructors' Championship, and I think going into this weekend, that was their goal and mission accomplished. I think they kept good pace with everyone on the medium tire, but then couldn't keep up with the likes of Russell, Leclerc, and Perez once they got into the hard tires. I think the hard tires just didn't work for them very well. And yeah, they managed to hang on to where they were at that point. You know, when Lando came out of the pit and he was right on the tail of 
Leclerc at that point, I believe. Um, I thought, man, it's on. And then you just realize, gosh, those hard tires just sucked on that McLaren on Sunday. And so I I resigned myself to the fact that they're just going to play it safe. They're going to finish wherever they wind up finishing as long as it's ahead of Aston Martin. And that's all they kind of cared about. No, I I definitely agree with you. I think they they played it safe from the constructor's standpoint. Obviously, you know, Lando and George were were battling back and forth quite a bit during that race. Um and and George came out on top. Obviously, got himself a podium um and and did really well, but I feel like McLaren and and I guess we can argue back and forth about this, but I feel like McLaren did a really good job of approaching this weekend as a team, but I don't feel like they they gave Lando an opportunity to move up in the driver's standings. Uh, obviously, that that really long pit stop that they had um, because the transmission was still engaged or the clutch didn't fully disengage. I, I'm not a mechanic, so I couldn't tell you I wasn't down there. You know, I I, I feel like when it when they needed it you know, from the garage, the support wasn't there. And that's when George overtook Lando was in the pit stop. And then, then he was never able to regain, um, the place back again. Obviously, you know, there's from the driver's standings, you know, 206 points to Fernando, 206 to Charles, 205 to Lando and Lando. One more place would have got him. It would have solidified, you know, fourth overall, um, he would have overtaken Charles and, and Fernando Alonso would have been nice, but it doesn't really mean anything at the end of the season, other than the fact that you can brag about where you finished. And I don't know how much that meant to them, but we owe it to ourselves to spend a few minutes talking about the collision and subsequent penalty between Checo and Lando. Yeah, Tom, I think that's something we definitely need to cover because as you've seen in the past few episodes, we have deliberated on the five second penalty with great extent, because it seems like there's a lot of inconsistencies when we're passing out these five second penalties. And it's almost to the point now where we should just give everyone a five second penalty from the start. And then that's how everybody needs to start the damn race because could Checo have been a little bit more cautious going into the turn? Yes. Did he have to be more cautious in order to be safe? No. I don't think it was warranted. So I went back and looked at quite a few angles and different cameras about this particular event, as well as the Verstappen and Russell collision in Vegas. Now, I'm not going to go all Zapruder film on this, but... Verstappen on the inside in Vegas. He turns his wheel to the left to start going around that chicane. His car does turn, so he's not faced with the same understeer problem as Checo. But he gets mid-corner, and then the understeer kind of starts happening. So his car does turn in to start the turn, and then he has to deal with understeer, and Russell turns into him. Russell, the one who turns into him, gets a five-second penalty. Probably warranted. Checo and Lando this week, the difference is Checo turns his wheel and his tires don't turn. He is understeering. Now, he does open up the steering wheel, but it's because he's fighting the car. Like, I don't think that was a voluntary, I opened up the steering wheel. I think it was, 
I started to turn, the car's not turning. Oh shoot. I got to open it up a little bit to see if I can get the tires to start going the direction that I want them to, instead of understeering directly into this car. They touched wheels. Lando goes to the, to the exit road. Lando stays in front to me racing incident. So the idea of slapping Checo with the five second penalty, I did not agree with. It was the, it was two guys fighting over the same corner. They did con- they did collide. We move on. What's the big deal? It was definitely amateur, and there's got to be something next season that the FIA does in regard to five second penalty and other penalties that could be applied. And what would warrant those? Because I know that like it's really difficult in situations like these for for most people to just look at the outcome to say like this was this is why we should apply the penalty. There was damage or there was no damage. Um, he was out of the race or there was no position lost. I but in the same stint, it, the action beforehand, which is why I'm really glad you broke this down of trying to steer cutting the understeer, getting the tires back on. Like there's obviously in Charles's description, it's a racing incident. Like this was the, no one, no one theoretically was at fault here, but you're going to apply the same penalty here that you would. What three, four races ago when we had multiple drivers knocked out of the entire race and couldn't finish. And we're going to give them a five second penalty. Like, it's just, it's really inconsistent. It's really infuriating. And while the, you know, while everyone's looking at whether or not we should put flaps on the automobiles to keep water spray from coming up for the two wet races we have a year, maybe just look at the penalty system and and a better way to apply it or other penalties that could theoretically be applied uh, that would have more impact based on how potentially dangerous the act was. There's And to your point, there's a lack of consistency in terms of what actions get punished and how severely they get punished. And why are we giving a five-second penalty for the minor contact racing incident between Perez and Norris, and then also giving a five-second penalty for track limits, and then also giving a five-second penalty for bowling into multiple cars and taking them out of the race? And then you look back at Vegas, turn one, lap one, you had Alonzo spinning out on his own and causing a collision. No penalty applied there. Bottas was hit by two different people and he, no, neither one of them got punished. So I don't, I don't really understand the penalty system. I think it's stupid. I think the idea of roaming stewards where you've got a new group of, of stewards each week or however it works out, I got to look into it, but it, I think it's dumb and I think it needs an overhaul. Now, another team we should probably mention real quick is Aston Martin. They have had three finishes in a row. So since the the debacle in Mexico, they've had three races in a row where they've had double points finishes. And after that mid-season slump, you've got to be encouraged. Now, they're not the second fastest car. They're not the third fastest car. They're probably not even the fourth fastest car. But you've got to be encouraged if you're following and supporting Aston Martin to see that little bit of return to form at the end of the season with three finishes in a row where both drivers finish in the points. Six weeks ago, eight weeks ago, we were all calling for Lance Stroll's head to roll. He did not deserve a seat on this team. 
we were looking at next year thinking like, how do you keep him? He is a, a liability. And now three straight weekends or three straight races in a row. Pretty good shape. Yeah, it's it's um it's definitely it gives you hope for next season, but a lot of that hope rides on the back of Lance Stroll. Is is what he's done the last three races, is it repeatable? Um, what changes were made over the past, let's call them four races, that allowed him to be more successful? Because what we've seen um, and, and obviously it played out this year is Fernando can't carry the team on his back and expect to finish top three, um, or really four in, in constructors, because there's just not enough, there's too many good drivers and not enough points available for him to do that. But when you can get Lance performing as well, and at least get him into the points every weekend, which he was again this weekend, finishing P10, barely in the points, but it, a point. It definitely gives the team a lot of hope, and it takes people like us who, as you said so eloquently, uh, eloquently, I should probably work on that word, we were calling for his head. And now we're sitting here going, eh, maybe he's not as bad as we thought he is. Is it repeatable? I think that's where the question lies, is can he be consistent? Is he good for a few races? Yeah, he's proven that. Um but much like um, Ferrari or McLaren uh, in qualifying, we need more than one good lap. We need more than a few good races. It's got to be consistent. I don't know if he's there. But it's based I, I on expectations hope. as well. It's based on where do you expect him to be? And if you're in the fourth fastest car, then theoretically points wise, you're finishing seventh and eighth, something around there. You know, and I know that's all theoretical. But if you look at the final five races of the season, starting in, in Coda, over the last five races, he scored 27 points. That's a little more than five points per, per race weekend. And he had a DNF in there in Mexico. So he finished seventh in Coda, DNF, fifth, fifth, tenth. Yeah, I mean, 20 of those points were scored in two races. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But look at the previous five races. The previous, actually, look at the previous seven races. He scored three points over the span of seven races between Silverstone and Qatar. Three points was all he could scrape from seven races. And then over the last five races, he got another 27 points. That's a pretty significant change in form, in my opinion. Oh, yeah. Significant. In, indeed. I think that's where a lot of the the off-season prep and technology is going to come into play to really, if you can drill down for, for someone like Lance or for any driver of, of that matter and say, and really look at the changes that were made and the effect that they had and build those into your automobile for next season, allow pl plenty of practice time, um, uh, R&D, all the fun stuff that goes into preparing he should finish top 10. Theoretically speaking, he should finish top 10 if they're able to replicate the type of, of car that they did, you know, for this 23 season. Over the course of an entire season, over the course of 2023, you just said he should be a top 10 driver. In 2023, he finished 10th. He has met expectations. In my opinion, he should still probably be keeping his job. And that's a big step change from where my mind was three months ago. Yeah. Cause that's a, it's a funny, it's a funny game that we play, which is, you know, who's the better driver 
you know, outside of maybe Ricardo having a good season every now and again, obviously I like Botas. Yuki proved himself well, but he's still too young. I'm not a huge fan of Albon or Ocon or Gasly for that matter. And then all of a sudden now you're at Stroll. So yeah, you just, uh, you kind of, you need to stay with the date that brought you, I guess. And his date's his dad. So he kind of has no choice. (laughs) Well, you mentioned Alcon and Gasly. I don't have a whole lot to say about Alpine from this weekend. I think they just, they were just there. They did Alpine type things. They made some stupid decisions. Um, Their drivers didn't set the world on fire. Their car's not great. So I don't have a whole lot to say about Alpine. Do you? No, I wish I did. Other than the fact that those two guys apparently hate each other is from like just everything that that's I can the juiciest see. part that, of the Alpine storyline. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's pretty much all we have to talk about is, you know, maybe those guys should do an off season arm wrestling tournament or something. I think you'd make them live together for the whole off season. <sighs> Dude. Okay. Drive to survive is good, but you throw a show like that out there. You want to talk about some storylines. That would be nuts. I'm in. I have nothing else to say about Alfa Romeo. Really not a whole lot to say about Alfa Tari. Nothing stands out from Williams. Uh, you know, Yuki tried to tried his best for Alfa Tari to take on Williams for seventh in the constructors. Did a great job, but Williams was able to hold on to that position after scoring no points this weekend. Um, I've got a serious question for you. Do you know why the Haas team is still allowed to participate in Formula One? <laughs> because in order to satisfy the Americans, we have to have at least one team, and it's the only thing that the rest of the world can beat us at? Good Lord. Hulkenberg, I mean, he didn't... For him to get into Q3, I think it was eight times this year he qualified in the top 10 out of 22 races in that car. That That's great. That's really amazing. But... He was down, I want to say, like five spots within the first lap. Like by turn four, he was down four or five positions. And Magnuson pitted on lap six. He only made made his medium tires go six laps. And then, and then he pitted a second time. Magnuson pitted a second time on lap 24 just before then. And so he was taking his two stops very early, but he couldn't climb out of the basement. He was in 20th place after that pit stop on lap six, stayed in 20th, and pitted again for another set of hard tires to try and take it to the end of the race. And did, but that was a horrible, horrible race for Magnuson. And Nico just fell like Haas does every week. They can't keep pace. And if you look at the the points over the course of the year, all of Nico, all of Haas's points, pretty much, and I, I say this more from Nico's standpoint. Nico scored all of his race points, Grand Prix points, in Australia in April. He scored six points in Australia, thanks to that nonsensical red flag at the end where they finished under. The, I shouldn't say they finished under the safety car, but it was basically that safety car dove in and everybody raced to the line, and that was the end of the race. But because of all those collisions, red flags, and DNFs, Nico was gifted a P7 finish in Australia. And then his only other points from this season 
came during the sprint race in Austria, where it was those changing conditions where it went from everybody started on inters and he was one of the ones who went to the slick tires or vice versa. I can't remember exactly what happened, but he went on that alternate strategy. I want to say with Alex Albon and wound up finishing high enough in the sprint race to score three points. So he scored six points on the first weekend in April and another three points the first weekend in July during a sprint race. That was the only points that Nico scored all season. Well, let's let's switch gears real quick and review our predictions from this weekend. Uh, that was way more time on Haas than I feel like we've ever spent, but you're welcome. So <laughs> we made predictions. We were level on points after Vegas, and we made predictions for pole position, third place, second place, and first place in the race. And this could decide, uh, what did we say, steak dinner? Steak dinner, I believe, is what we, uh, yeah, what we bet on this. It was either this or steak dinner on. No, did I bet? I bet you a steak dinner on Ferrari. We're gonna have to go back oh, and listen. Boy. I think the steak dinner was on Ferrari clinching second in constructors, not for our point system. Ugh. we're gonna, you know, we're gonna have to go back to the tape and see. Because if so, I owe you a steak dinner. <laughs> Unfortunately. <laughs> Well, I hate to be uh, a spoiler before we reveal all of the final numbers, but uh, you'd owe me a steak dinner either way because I kind of won this weekend. So pole position, you had Carlos signs. He had a little bit of trouble in Q1, didn't get out of that. So he was out of the running for pole. I took a very safe pick, relatively safe. Uh, I went with Max Verstappen, so two points for me there. Third place, you had... Carlos signs, and I took Lando Norris. No points for either one of us there. Second place, now this is where it got interesting. You picked Sergio Perez, and I picked Charles Leclerc. And as those final few laps were happening, (laughs) as those final few laps were happening, I was trying to figure out, okay, wait a minute, what's Charles trying to do here? He's trying to slow Russell down enough but he needs Checo to still finish between them after the penalty. And so I was trying to figure out what math he was trying to do and whether or not it would actually work out. Thankfully for me, uh, the Perez penalty dropped him down to fourth, and that allowed me to take the points there for Leclerc finishing second. So I got two points there. And then we both took Verstappen to win, so we each got three points. So I walked away from this weekend with a total of seven out of a possible eight points, I almost hit for the cycle and you walked away with three. So final standings, Tom finished with 20 points. John finished with 16 points. So a, a strong Abu Dhabi weekend. will put some steak in my belly. I'm like the hoss of our podcast, apparently. Why are you even here? I don't know. Don't know. Because clearly I can't pick. So we're going to introduce uh, a new little race review segment here. We're going to call it the Soft, Hard, and Wet Awards. So rather than picking a you know top driver team or top three, bottom three kind of moments of the weekend or, or even a best and worst, we're going to tie it into the show name. 
And so we have an award for who was soft this weekend. And by soft, we mean kind of lame or weak, no guts, play it safe. And for hard, who had a very ballsy move or, or call, someone that makes you say kind of wow or that mentality, uh, like we say in the States, kind of like, okay, you think that was good? Hold my beer. And uh, just kind of that hold my beer mentality. And then for wet, it's just kind of that WTF, like who absolutely brainless. What were you thinking? And so, John, why don't you lead us off with your award for the soft uh, winner this weekend? Yeah, you know, the soft winner, weak sauce, uh, extra weak sauce included, goes to none other than Ferrari. We've talked about this on the episode today, so I'm just going to recap. Driver lost, has no idea what they're doing out there, no direction. The other driver is the only one concerned about where you place in constructors. And uh, the pit wall, the team, the engineer, the principal, no one is giving any sort of direction, and they just went into the last race of the season with their heads up their ass. Tom, what say you for soft? I think it was super soft what the stewards did for that Checo penalty. So I'm I'm putting the Checo penalty. Actually, I'm putting the FIA stewards in my soft category for this weekend. Hard. The hold my beer award. There was a, a depending on who you listen to, Tom or John, there either was not a lot to choose from this weekend or quite a bit to choose from this weekend. I'm interested to hear, Tom. Who went the hardest? I gave this one to Leclerc for his brainsy, ballsy move to try and to try at least to to consider to hold up Russell and and how do we secure P two for the championship? I think he was just he was playing chess when everybody on the pit wall was playing checkers, unfortunately. And uh, yeah, it was a good attempt. It was pretty impressive. It was kind of that same in the same ballpark as uh, back in Singapore when Signs was strategically trying to keep Lando and DRS just to hold up everybody else behind him. I, I thought Leclerc trying to do that um, strategic move versus Russell uh, to account for the Perez penalty was was pretty hard. How about you? Yeah, you know, Charles actually got an honorable mention from me, the only category that received an honorable mention. And part of it was due to his... Uh, end of race uh chess playing but also the first three laps in his battle with uh with max i thought was spot on uh he was trying to prove his ability as a driver but you know who said hold my soul and watch me do this it was checo with as much grief as he's been getting towards the end of the season as to whether or not he should be the second driver at red bull he said i'll not do myself any favor in qualifying because I don't do that. And uh, I'll start P9, theoretically finish uh, P2, although it was really more of a P3 finish uh, since Charles let him by and then a little bit of a penalty there. But I thought he did a fantastic job this weekend of uh, just working his way up the grid and proving that uh, he still got it. Yeah, he really sent it. So finally, the wet award for the brainless, what were you thinking WTF moment? Who you got? Funny, um, my wet goes to your soft, and your soft is my wet, and neither one are hard, and that is the FIA five-second penalty. What in the heck? We've beaten this down. 
to no end, so I won't beat it down anymore. But whenever I say WTF in my head, uh, WTF and FIA just kind of go together. <laughs> I'm going to give the wet award to, uh, I, I was going to give it to the Ferrari race engineers for what they were doing with Carlos Sainz during the end of that race. But I'm going to give it to, I'm going to give it to Alpine. I think the, what they were trying to do with Alcon and Gasly and who was going to pit first and what was, who was going to be on what strategy. It just, it wind up screwing both of them, you know, Alcon on a one stop Gasly on a two stop. They basically finished right next to each other on the racetrack. And it was just, it was just stupid all around. It was dumb to watch, dumb to try and figure out. And uh, in the end didn't matter at all, but you kind of just raise your eyebrows. Like what on earth are you guys thinking down there at Alpine? Well, I, you know, it's, it's hard to believe that a team that can't figure out which one of their drivers they want to finish ahead of any of the other ones um, is worried about being competitive out on the racetrack. Um, they're too busy figuring out if it's Pierre finishing ahead of Ga- uh, Ocon or Ocon ahead of Gasly. Um, yeah, I don't know what to say about those guys, but they need to get it figured out. I still think your uh, your idea for putting them in a house together, uh, Big Brother style for the off season and recording it is probably the best bet. Well, it's been a ton of fun. And like you said, we've got some more end of season content coming up maybe next week, the week after that. We'll see how long we can spread these uh, these grades and final reviews of the 2023 season out. We also might have some fun uh, off season content for you. But I think Brady's going to join us for our, our next episode or two. Uh, so we're excited to have him back. And uh, I appreciate uh, you listening. Enjoyed talking to you, John, about the uh, Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. And we'll catch you all next time.